Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 112. I'm your host, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hi, everyone. Grail. Hello. There is no Berserk news. Uh, we don't know when the new episode is coming. Some people are suggesting it's probably in April. They're hoping the three-month delay thing that's been the case since last April will kick in, but no one really knows for sure. Patterns like these have come and gone over the years without really any staying power. So we'll see. That'd be great to get it sooner or, you know, but having it on a schedule would be nice as well. Either way, we'll wait. Uh, no new news in terms of the exhibition that's still being postponed due to COVID. So we'll wait and see when that when those doors finally open. But other than that, it's been pretty pretty quiet on the Berserk front for a while, which is a-okay for me because that has allowed me and others time to prepare for a big reread volume, volume 24, which is hefty, 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 because <laughs> it is uh, probably the most dialogue heavy. I-, I don't even think there's a, I don't think, I don't even think it's close. Eh, I don't know about that. Um, okay. Throw me a throw me a rival up there. Which but one is I, it? I, yeah, I mean, once they get to Ritanis, for example, and Serpico explains about the sure. various nations. That's like two pages. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't this has like three episodes back to back of just like straight up talking. Yeah, which is that's crazy. True, that's true. But I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'd have to- number of words aside, it's heavy concepts conceptually heavy yeah. uh, volume yeah. for Berserk. That is true, yeah. and that is definitely like. From a conceptual and world-building perspective, no contest, it's uh, the heaviest. So we're going to start with looking at the cover, and then going further, we'll go into the episodes, probably only making it to the halfway point as usual, uh, particularly for this one, because we have a lot to say about each of them. So, uh, volume 24, it is, uh, we have a a sidelong profile shot of each of the members of Gut's party. And we have a Sidro kind of breaking the fourth wall, you know, with his little ticking a little pose, whereas the others all look preoccupied. He's there to show off with his little pinky up as well, which is nice. This one's a big favorite. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's pretty funny. He's got some personality showing, whereas the others look kind of, you know, sullen. Or yeah, something. and it also features so many characters, which isn't isn't typical of a Berserk character uh, or a Berserk uh, album cover. <laughs> album cover. <laughs> it, it is like an album but- cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also because Guts is literally in the in the background of this shot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's indicative of him becoming part of an ensemble now as instead of Guts being the sole focus of the story. Mm-hmm. Now he is there, of course, but he's no longer the central focus of at least this volume. So that's right. a that's it, a shift. It tells you it tells you a lot without going into the literal contents of the volume, which I think is pretty cool. The green background, which is, you know, very literal because they are mostly in a forest for this volume. Yeah. So <laughs> um the other thing I lo- I actually liked was it's made very apparent just when you put Farnese and Serpico side by side like this, their features are so similar. Um, and of course it is because they're related and we already know that, but I just think it's neat that their character design suddenly makes more, uh, you know, comes into focus now. Blonde hair, the same nose, lips, chin features, they, you know, they very much resemble each other. Farnese is just clueless, basically. Mm -hmm. Like the twins from the Guin saga. I know. I always think that when I look at this cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And what's funny though here is that Casca is standing too close to Guts, but that's kind of a necessity of the structure of the cover. Well, she's it's more that she's next to Farnese, but you're right. She is close to Guts as well. 
go ahead and open it up. We have two posters, of course, back to back. The one with Shirke, I like because it makes her look very serious and enigmatic. When the truth is, she's just a kid. You know, she's very knowledgeable and very powerful, but this is just so not the Shirke that we come to know. It is very much the Shirke we're introduced to in this volume, though. Yeah. Yeah. She looks very distant. Her introduction is actually even more mysterious and uh, even eerie, I would say, than, than this poster. So it's, uh, I think it's appropriate for, for the context. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that, it's not that interesting, but we don't really see her bright green hair color yet. That comes into volume 25's cover is the first time we see that. Um, but it's in, in shadows here, which is also how, how her introduction is done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also get some of those ga- many really small versions of the golems at her feet, which are cute. Yeah, that's more the actual uh, control device of the golems than the oh, right. things themselves. That's right. Before they get covered up in mud. Yep. Good call. Uh, on the other side, we have really reflecting how this volume opens with uh, Isidro in the midst of training. Uh, with the logs on vines, it looks like he's tied to them. It kind of reminds me of Guts training, right? Whenever he's doing yeah. his training. and It's funny, except it's a Pox that's actually training him and dropping chestnuts on, on top of his head and that kind of stuff. That's right. Funny. He's got the sticks under control, but then the parade or rain of bloody needles is about to strike him. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good stuff. The context for this volume, you know... It was never in question that Berserk was a fantasy series. From the very first scene, it's made apparent that this is not just a sword or medieval story. Uh, This is a story about humans and demons and dark magic. Um, But in volume 24, it starts to really look the part of a fantasy series, with Miura really throwing down some rules about the concepts of his world. And it's interesting that he really kind of waited 20 years to start doing that. He describes himself as someone who's reluctant to pin down places and concepts with names because it starts to ground them in a foreign place that's not similar to our world. In the guidebook interview, he relates it to Disney stories that have like an almost universal appeal because they start so simply. Everyone can relate to them. Once upon a time, there was something. He argues that once you start tossing in country names and weapons names and proper nouns, the story just becomes more obsessive. And he uses the example of the Cobra Apostle and the Snail Apostle, who he never even named in those early volumes, you know. So that's part of what makes Volume 24 so special, because he is taking time to lay down rules and definitions for the world that he's already spent 20 years building. Hmm. Now, I was going to say, he's also at a point of the story where he doesn't have much of a choice anymore. So I think it's a result of... He built a story around characters and, uh, you know, their specifics, their life stories, what happened and everything. Then when he had to expand the world a little bit because he had likely already planned what was coming, Fantasia, you know, Griffith's plans and everything. So he had to ground that up and expand the world in a way that made sense. And that's the role this volume serves. So I feel like that's also like the natural progression of the story at this point where he had already decided a long time before that he wouldn't just do guts fighting monsters and then another apostle, then another one, then another one. So he had to progress from that point and, and that felt like the natural expansion of, to it. 
Yeah, and not only is he expanding the world, he's kind of like paving the way for the next big shift that's coming in 10 volumes with the merging of the worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, in addition to allowing these little episodes they'll have in Enoch Village and Cliffoth and all that, it's really setting the stakes for what will ultimately happen in the series, the big shift that's coming just in, in 10 volumes from this moment. Yep. There's another big, big pivot that happens here, and that's uh, Miura starts to take the focus of the story away just from Guts to expand the world and the characters around Guts. You know, this started, of course, to change with the group dynamics in the previous volume, but it's solidified as the new normal in this volume. You know, he's making room for others. We're also formally introduced to Shirke, who will become very important for this group in the near future. And, of course, Flora, who, you know, she casts a really long shadow over the whole series. A very important character, even though she's only in a real small handful of volumes. But, you know, she's laying out the inner workings of Berserk in a way that we've really never been told directly about them before. A lot of times we get cryptic explanations from Skull Knight and we have to kind of extrapolate what it might mean. And Flora tells it very matter-of-factly, which is very different for for Berserk. This volume is probably the one I've had on my, my desk the most out of all the little volumes that I have kind of crowded around my desk usually. 24 sticks out because it's almost always out uh, because there's always something to say or to question about the three worlds, the three dimensions that we learn about in this volume. Um, questions like about that have come up throughout the entire you know time of Skullmate.net. Um, so it's a good reference for the rest of the series. And, you know, Miura is continually expanding and uh, not changing, but adding to that basic understanding that we get in this volume. So one of my favorites for sure. I'll it's go a ahead. Great one. Sorry, go ahead. I don't know. I was just saying it's a great one. I, I really enjoy this volume. I'm glad we're having a chance to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's a milestone for sure. Uh, volume 24, we, the first image we have is of a troll devouring a human, a human arm. This is, of course, a flash forward to the end of the volume when we're in Enoch Village, but kind of sets a terrorizing tone for the opening of this, which is otherwise very lighthearted, but kind of gives you an indication of where we're headed uh, with this next part of the series. So the first episode we're going to do is Trolls. Uh, The summary is, Isidro shows off some of his survival talents that he's accrued on his own journey, like stealing apples and suplexing an old man. (laughs) He's an ambitious kid who dreams of becoming the world's greatest swordsman, and he's hopeful that he can learn some from Guts. Meanwhile, Guts and Serpico share some bonding time, where Serpico explains that he'd prefer that Farnese drop this charade and return home, but she's starting to emerge as someone new and unfamiliar. But he'll hold Guts responsible if anything happens to her. As Farnese and Casca are gathering firewood, they're snatched by a troll. Isidro sees them and pursues, and all of that is seen by a mysterious figure in the forest in a witch's outfit. The first thing I wanted to say about this episode is it's a very welcome change of pace from where we were in the previous volume, where it's just so heavy, you know, and this the opening pages of this episode where Isidro is running away from an old man and then tricking him into lowering his guard before <laughs> suplexing him. It's just that all very lighthearted and funny. Yeah. But it also really opens up really honestly, like he's a good actor. Like, you know, he convinces yeah. this guy after he'd already <laughs> run away. His little fake tears. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It shows you how resourceful <laughs> he's had to become on the road. 
Well, yeah, I like this scene too because he's really playing off of the old man's uh, assumptions about him, mm-hmm. which I think is clever. Yeah, just like playing off of the fact that he's a little kid and he's a little bit small, and he can trick other people into thinking he's helpless and just sort of doesn't know what he's doing, and then boom with the wrestling moves. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the best in the series, in my opinion, and it's reminiscent of his introduction in uh, volume eighteen when he he tricks the bandits. Fake crying, he gives them the food, but it's actually poisoned. Then the other guys show up, this kind of, uh, you know, sketch, little sketch that keeps going, you know. Even, yeah. you know, even the, the old guy's face when he gets back up, you know, the bloody face when he's in oh, rage, it's, it's just incredible. <laughs> then the final apple to the face. And then in the background, you've got the donkey eating up the apple bits from the guy's <laughs> face, you know. As, That's as so good. Realize. And it's just, Honestly, it's just comedic genius to me. I, I love that one. It's uh, it's amazing. So it's it's a quality gag for sure. Yeah, I love how facts. the old man he's like close to madness whenever he finally like sits back up, bloody faced. He's just like yeah. the look of insanity in his eyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I like the fact that you know you all can also see. As Isidro gets uh, put down, uh, you know, Puck actually, you know, ejects from him and you, you can see he eats the apple in the background. And he just, you know, looking back at this just made me laugh because he always manages to get out uh, just fine. You know, whatever happens, he's just like, well, time to go. So uh, <laughs> that was pretty funny. It's also it, worth noting this guy doesn't, this guy's back. Yeah. You know, he's, he's trailing them. Yeah. He shows up in Vertanis. To chase after Isidro, presumably. Wow, well, pretty funny. I don't think he was chasing after him, but he hasn't meet him again. Yeah, we see him. We see him again. Um, about Isidro, uh, Miura mentions in the guidebook interview that Isidro is actually based on the child of one of his former assistants. He was an ambitious kid who came up to Miura one day and asked him how he could become a mangaka like him one day. Oh. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Hmm. There's actually a lot of development for, for Isidro in just a few pages uh, in this episode. There's great development for him. And I was also, like you said, it starts uh, very lighthearted and it's true, but it's also very dense in and of itself. You know, as far as uh, how much development happens, the introduction of the trolls, Shiroke, it's very, very packed. So, yeah. you know, very impressive from that perspective, the pace at which things move, you know? Yeah. One thing I took note of was that Isidro has these natural talents and you know, Puck comments on it whenever on the page where Isidro knocks down two birds with two stones and, you know, two quick throws, you know, Puck's mm-hmm. basically saying that you have this natural ability that you're kind of ignoring in pursuit of this swordsman thing that you think is really cool. And it is really evocative of adolescence, you know, not accepting your natural skills or talents because it's so relatable, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you grow up thinking like you want to be like so and so, or you want to be like this person you see on TV, and then you don't really recognize the uh, abilities or, or you know, the things you have going for you until you're an adult. Yeah, you just you can't get over the draw of this cool guy you saw this one time, and you want to yeah. glo- attach <laughs> that part to your identity. So the grass yeah. is always greener. And it's interesting that he actually, from Puck's uh, suggestion. He actually puts two and two together and figures out, yeah, I could actually dual wield weapons instead of just trying to, you know, swing a big sword like guts. So that's, that's pretty cool. That, and then he puts it into practice. And yeah, I think it's interesting that guts sees it even before it's made apparent what's happening because the is yeah. trying to do sleight of hand. You know, mm-hmm. he's, 
He's obscuring what he's drawing because that side of his body is away from Guts. You know, he thinks he's being sly, but Guts sees it before he even grabs it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. But it's nice that, you know, he recognizes that Isidro is trying something new. You know, it doesn't work, but, you know, he's trying to improvise and make something make thing happen on the spot. I think yeah. that's really cool. He compliments it, uh, actually. He tells him it's, uh, it's good and he should keep doing it. Yeah. It's hard to not think about uh, Guts training with Gambino in this scene. I don't think there's anything special about it. Just that Guts is a very different person than Gambino, obviously. And uh, I just thought it was funny or interesting to think about how different those two became mm. uh, as people. Yeah, his mentoring is very down to earth, uh, but also very realistic. I like that he tells Isidro, well, you know, you're not going to be training for years and years before you get your first battle. And anyway, even if you did that, uh, that wouldn't do you any good. And he underlies the fact that the life Isidro has already been living uh, has kind of prepared him for battle in a way. So I, I like that. That's very, I mean, it's very much like Guts. And like you said, it's also much kinder and useful than the kind of stuff he got from Gambino, which was kind of mean-spirited in a way. Of course, yeah. yeah. It's po- positive reinforcement. Yep. <laughs> we get this little shot of... Uh, a scene reminiscent of the golden age uh, when Gus is reflecting about, you know, what a real battlefield is like. And, you know, you're not always, you can't be focusing on just fighting one person. You have to fight on multiple people and watch out for cannonballs. And there's all these other dangers on the battlefield that you just fighting one-on-one can only train you so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also get a little bit of uh, Sidro's backstory, which is really just four panels uh, where he ran away from home that he felt he doesn't really exactly say it, but he didn't want to um, stay in such a quiet place. He, he's wanted to go um, be on his own. Yeah, I think he's just a classic call for adventure of boys. You know, he was ambitious. He didn't want to live his life in a rundown village. I mean, you can, we are not told anything, but that's the kind of stuff you can just assume from his character and his motivations. Yeah. It's no snow and flames, but it's a uh, appropriate backstory for our shonen protagonist. Yep. Now that I think about it, it's sort of like this is the first page of what's ultimately revealed in Enoch Village when he's talking to Morgan. You know, his reaction to what Morgan says about his own life mm-hmm. kind of says more about his uh, his ambition and his, his desire to strike out uh, on his own. So, he's, so that he doesn't end up in some backwater village, so that he doesn't end up with yeah. someone you know, whose dreams got trampled, basically. Yeah, exactly. And it's also kind of what he says here, is that if he just waits until the day he's ready, he's going to be waiting all his life. It's something, I mean, he can't even go back to, to Jill, you know, uh, the fact, the desire to leave a place where he can't do anything. And of course, Jill chose to stay and try to change things where she was. And you see, Ro, his choice was just to leave his family and try to become someone uh, the hard way. Mm. Which, of course, both paths are valid and equally difficult. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you think of Asidro's big dream? <laughs> it's another pretty funny moment. I mean, <laughs> I think Puck's, Puck's reaction is what makes it, you know, <laughs> is, is what really makes a joke. Is the fact he's got this, he can't help. He tries to to stay, you know, a stoic, but he can't help but uh, smirk at the, <laughs> at the idea, you know, especially since he can actually read minds. So he must yeah. see uh, what's in his head, you know. <laughs> that picture in his head is very specific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's also, yeah, it's funny because it's, uh, it's a very cheesy image of a knight 
that's like appropriate for for a kid like like him you know he doesn't yeah like he's not even actually badass it's just it's just stupid yeah that's so funny because he he's been through so much like in the you know the tower of conviction and everything like he fought off heretics and all this scary stuff and yet at the same time he's got this childish dream of being this kind of knight in his mind yeah it's uh yeah it's an interesting ambition and, and we actually get to see I mean we get calls callbacks to it uh, over time the fact he was uh, admirative of the hundred man slayer uh, who he still hasn't quite realized was guts uh, and <laughs> guts I, knows him though yeah yeah guts knows him though so it's uh <laughs> he could uh, introduce him and um yeah and I also like that just before that he actually gets beaten up by puck. You know, he tries to, like, they have this little fight and you see that Puck actually gets the, the better of him. And even though it's, uh, it's for comedic purposes, it's interesting that it shows how far Cedro still has to come. Like, he's ambitious, he's got talent, but he's not quite up there yet. And that's actually something we get to see, uh, put to the test, uh, right after. Speaking of which, uh, the next page after Cedro's big dream, uh, washes over Puck's face there. Uh, we see Farnese and Casca gathering firewood, and then they're interrupted. Or Casca senses something in her brand, and they're interrupted by his long, furry arm. Farnese is actually she's plucking the the birds that uh, Isidro caught, and and Casca's playing with the feathers, which is her favorite activity, playing with stuff. <laughs> Definitely. I wanted to talk about the introduction of trolls here because I think it's pretty interesting the timing of it. Because it serves as a bridge into the Enoch Village sequence, which, mm-hmm. of course, is interrupted by Flora's mansion. It's like Mira's giving us a glimpse of a creature of the astral world that we're going to get a big information dump about, you know, in a few episodes. But it helps ground that conversation a little bit more than if it were just some abstract concept of the other world and other creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, you know, introduces some tension that loops back to their eventual journey over to Enoch. I just thought that was a smart inclusion, the timing of it. So that there is some tension in this otherwise relaxing period of the volume. Yeah, and something uh, we, we talked about it uh, during the episode uh, 363 uh, review, which is a fact in Berserk. Things tend to be like the action is always mingled with the exposition and and the information that kind of stuff. So, like it makes sense that Mira would introduce a threat have the character confront it or some of the characters, then it leads to, you know, something else. Then it leads to more action. It's always intermingled like that. You've never got a clean cut. And now we're talking, now we're taking a rest, now we're traveling, now we're fighting. It's always mixed up. And that's also what keeps uh, keeps you reading. You know, you want to know more. Then it's, it's a page turner because of that kind of structure. Mm-hmm. We have this scene with uh, Guts and Serpico, which... You know, they, it lasts for a few pages, but really it's kind of level setting about their relationship and uh, defining what their rivalry is really all about for the foreseeable future. You know, Serpico is reflecting on Sifarnese's change, and I was wondering about his reaction to it. You know, he immediately says that, you know, Guts is the one that changed her. But I wonder, does he not realize that this change is a good thing? Do you think he feels uncomfortable that, you know, his sister is changing in this way because it probably makes her more vulnerable. Uh, I just wondered, because he seems very um, defensive or, uh, I guess, upset that she seems... I feel like it's a mix of things. I think it's uh, partially... He's he's saying, I'm worried about Farnese's immediate safety, but I think subliminally he's also saying, 
I, I want to go back to how things used to be. Yeah. Because it's more comfortable for my emotions, too. Yeah, that's mm. exactly right. I think that it's a mix of he's worried of where things will take them. He doesn't trust guts. And he knows uh, danger falls guts around, so he's worried about her. But he's also yeah. fundamentally... Like, he, they used to have a thing that was clear, you know, clear set. He could, I won't say he could control it, but at least he knew what to expect. And now he doesn't know anymore. She's changing and he doesn't know where that leaves him and what's going to happen. And I think that's what makes him uncomfortable more than anything. I also like in this scene the fact Serpico is the one who asks Gus to come to help him gather, gather firewood. She's just going to excuse to, to speak with him. But Gus actually goes straight to the point. And Serpico's surprised by that. He even plays coy, like, oh, what do you mean? So I like that Guts, like, doesn't just, just doesn't fuck around. You know, he goes straight to the point. And, and, uh, and that forces Serpico to also show his cards. And it's also, I also like, it's like the tough guy thing happening here with Guts tossing a stick to kind of test Serpico, who, you know, definitely dodges it. But then Guts turns and Serpico throws like a, a nut at, at, at Guts and he has to turn and catch it real quick. So there's this little, you know, tough guy thing happening between them as well. Just funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, over to the trolls. Uh, Estidro starts following them and he gets a full glimpse of what this troll really looks like. And their, their design is finally shown to us. And this one in particular is very intimidating. You know, some of them look comical or kind of weak. This one doesn't. This one... Looks very imposing. I think yeah. it's just the face or just something about it, but it looks way more serious and scary than some of the other trolls do. Yeah. I think there's the fact it's Isidro who's saying it. Mm. Like when Guts, when you see them from Guts' perspective, where they're just like pests and he can slaughter, and when you see it from Isidro's perspective in this introduction where he slides, he managed to get it to turn around, and then... Like it's a serious, it's, it's a serious business. You know, he's got an axe. I, I feel like the, I don't know if uh, what I'm saying is clear, but the atmosphere of the confrontation is very serious. It's not just, oh, we're just going to fuck this up. Isidro doesn't know if he's going to, going to win or not. So I think that's yeah. also what makes it appropriate visually. Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. This is not a Tolkien troll. The trolls in <laughs> Tolkien are big. Massive muscular things, you know. Yeah. This was this is much more obviously as the Mira tends to do this. It's more the classical depiction of the troll: a large, giant nose, you know, very furry, <laughs> but yeah. humanoid. Your suit. <laughs> Dangerous to humans. You know, this is the, the classical depiction, not yeah. friendly to humans. Mira tends generally to get inspiration from from folklore. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, in that in that sense, it's different from the how to say traditional RPG. Uh, kind of depiction, which comes, which yeah. does come from Tolkien. I see what you mean. Yep. The other thing is the the character design. You know what it reminded me even earlier was uh, the same design is in Willow. There's their trolls and Willow are also these humanoid, oh, furry, that's right. you know, sort of sort of human ones. Damn. And I'll tell you, I remember that because that scared the living shit out of me when I was eight years old and saw them burning alive and screaming, which yeah. was probably oh a God. little much. <laughs> I haven't seen Willow in a really, really long time. I don't remember what the trolls look like. That seared an Im image into my mind because I was really scared of that part of the movie because they were just so so human and yet definitely more animalistic. And that, that particularly creeped me out. So wow. Damn. Um, Asidro draws his sword very nervously, thinking he can take this on. You know, he kind of, like, gives himself courage, but you can still tell he, he's a little nervous about this next encounter. 
Yeah. And looking on Ivalira and Shirke, I like how Ivalira is like, well, now they're dead. Now they're going to die. Because <laughs> there's no way these guys can take on a troll. And that's the end of the episode. I think it's also because she knows there's more than one. Ah, right. Yeah. Good call. On to Azil. All right. So the next one is called Witch, and uh, I'll give you a little factoid. Uh, there's another episode called Witch in the series, and it's uh, episode, of course, 198, uh, wherein Casca is about to be burned at the stake during the conviction arc. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting, Witch. Interesting. So, yeah, despite his confidence, Isidro is no match for the troll, who is both stronger and faster than he looks. Uh, he trips up and is about to get killed when Shiruke saves him by throwing some bays at the beast. Uh, as she tells Isidro to look around, he sees that they're actually surrounded by trolls all up in the trees. She creates a magic circle to protect the group and casts a protective spell. That's the first magic ritual we see in the series. Uh, when the trolls attack, they are repelled and she then sends them away by blowing strands of her hair. She tells them that they should leave the region and Isidro argues back uh, and while doing so, he trips and grabs onto her as he falls. He ends up, of course, grabbing her breast. And in that process, realizes that she isn't actually an old hag, but a, a kid just like him. To punish him from, for his impudence, she hypnotizes him uh, into being an actual monkey, which is fitting for him, as we know. And uh, as she watches from afar, uh, as they rejoin the group, she, she wonders how they could see her spell and can feel that there is something unusual about uh, Gus and Casca. So um, I think this episode is actually very atmospheric and uh, has a horror vibe to it, which is a continuation of what you mentioned, uh, Walter, with the troll. Uh, the trolls are really depicted as a very dangerous, like a serious threat. Uh, what's more, Shuki's face is obscure for most of it. Uh, and, and of course, the reveal of her face is actually an, ama an amazing p panel. I really love it. Uh, when she turns back, she's got that halfway look on her face. It's very iconic, uh, I believe, for her character. Another thing that's interesting is that Puck recognizes that she's a witch. And later, when she casts uh, the spell, she he knows it's a magic ritual she's doing. It's a small detail, but I feel like it's smartly embedded uh, at a time when we didn't know magic users lived in our film. Uh, so, you know, it's something, again, a small detail, Mirapat's there, people might say, eh, eh, who cares? But actually, it makes sense in the grand scheme of things. Same way, we see that Farnes is nervous uh, because she's a witch, and Farnes has a history of burning witches. So, again, small detail, small little things that, again, plays a role when, when they meet Flora. Um, and yeah, of course, uh, this episode serves... The purpose of reintroducing Shiruke properly as someone who has valuable knowledge and skills uh, and is contemptuous towards a cider. It introduces magic into the series. There's that first ritual. Uh, we are told about the four elements. We're told about odd. Um, and like I said before, it shows that trolls are dangerous creatures, but also that they're basically wild animals. Uh, that they can be lethal, but also can be driven off if you know how to handle them. So it's they are not unlike bears or wolves. And it's interesting, and, and uh, Gus actually comments on it later on. Uh, it's a difference with apostles, you know, who are humans, uh, dangerous and evil, and, and have like a, a will to do something. They want to rape, they want to kill. Trolls, they're, they're just stupid beasts. They want to eat and, you know, rape and whatever, but they're, they're just animals at heart. 
So yeah, and finally, uh, it shows of course that Ichiro uh, still got a ways to go before t- being truly battle ready, um, and it establishes his and Shiroke's complex relationship uh, of kind of one sided rivalry that still runs to this day, and uh, and it's it's kind of complex. So yeah, lots of stuff. The pattern for that rivalry is established here, and it's the same throughout. Like it's basically, yeah. a Sejiro steps out of line, Shiroke puts him back in line. And that, for Isidro's perspective, just ups the ante, you know, makes it even more serious for him. Yeah, exactly. And that's how it goes for the rest of the series. And he's got this um, complex, inferiority complex, because she's, like, smart and elegant. She speaks very politely while he speaks, like, as vulgarly as possible. Uh, she She's actually got power and she knows what she's doing, whereas he's clumsy and messes up. So they're complete opposites, but of course, I mean, we're not going to get into it here, but uh, their relationship is interesting. I, I do I do think they go well together and that they might even end up romantically together down the line if Mira deems it uh, valuable. But <laughs> it's an interesting relationship and I would say friendship, I guess, at this point. Yeah, at, for this part in particular, I thought it was interesting because we just got from the part where he was getting instructions from from guts and i think that he is really sensitive right now so she really like <laughs> twisted the knife a little bit in in terms of how he's feeling about himself right now so it was a yep. it was an interesting interaction and it got off there it started their uh interaction off at a really awkward place which i i guess has just kind of continued yeah exactly it's reinforced in uh Enoch later on and then again and again, and like what they said uh, to this day, it goes on. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, so what about the, that magic ritual? Because that's also the big thing. This is the actual first time we see a magic user use uh, magic in Berserk. Or should I say, we see a magic user use traditional magic because technically uh, members of the God Hand are using magic, you know, evil magic to do evil thing, to transform people into monsters, to curse people with a brand, to do all kind of things, but it's still magic. And this is our introduction to another kind of magic, uh, more traditional and, uh, and very interesting. So one thing I would say is that uh, we are shown the four elements here. Uh, Shoke only mentions Salamander, uh, for the elementals, but we see that she places the four elements, uh, on the cardinal points of the circle. That's something that comes from ancient Greece and that became popular in most of Europe later on. She also casts a pentagram, which has five points. And you would say, why five points? Well, that's because a, a fifth element was introduced, uh, later on. Uh, I think it was by, uh, Aristotle. Uh, and that's uh, what corresponds to Baryutes, which was also introduced in Berserk recently. So it's interesting to see these, these parallels. Um, also in, in, in Greece, it was referred to as ether. Uh, in any case, yeah, these five points are the five points of the pentagram, and that's why it's used here. And, uh, and the idea of elementals, uh, salamander, undine, sylph, and, and gnome, uh, they came to be during the 16th century. Uh, and all these things are the bases that Mira used, some of the bases that Mira used to uh, create the magical, uh, what to say, context within Berserk. Even though you say, yeah, there is sacrificial magic used by the God Hand, this is really our first real look at magic. And it's interesting how ritualized it is. I love this four-corner panel where she is placing the 
representations of each of the elements. We have a little vial of water, a rock, a tiny little a twig, and some some sand, I guess it is, or some kind of powder for air. Um, but I, sort of, I love how like specific it is and the, the placement of it. And then we see the pentagram appear, and that's the real moment where it's like, oh, this is powerful stuff. This is not just you know some some illusion or trick. This is actually something that can make a difference in a battle. Yep. One thing I thought was interesting was this is uh, Mira talks about how he wanted to formulate magic, how he wanted to portray magic in Berserk, because it was a big shift. Uh, in the guidebook interview, he says that he wanted to portray magic as faithfully as possible, the way that a real magician conceptualizes magic. He uh, says, in researching, I learned that magic is more of an inner thing than I realized. The important part is to visualize a spell being carried out in the astral world and to precisely imagine the spell's effects. Some of which is addressed in this uh, episode. You know, when mm. Shirke talks about when she blows uh, p- parts of her hair, but it's perceived as fire arrows on the trolls. And that's part of what Mir is talking about in that little passage there. The other thing I thought was funny was Isidro immediately just assumes that Shirke is an old woman or a granny, the way he says it in the Dark Horse translation. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think it's very obvious why, if you're not in Japanese, and I'm just assuming, I'm assuming here, it's probably because of the way that she talks, I'm guessing. Uh, I don't know why else he would assume that this person is a grandmother figure when there's no other <laughs> indication that that's the case. It must be the way that she talks. She must be very stiff and formal, which would fit her. But I don't know for sure. Just yeah, she, she speaks like that, but I think that's also because uh, of her outfit. Uh, mm-hmm. She's got a very stereotypical witch outfit. And even even when um, they meet uh, Flora... Uh, Isidro saying, oh, I, I thought you'd have like a big nose with a, a mole on it, that kind of stuff. So I think it's yeah. also because of that stereotypical conception, which is again, when we see the Volvaba, uh, they've got this little thing where they say, oh, she's like a stereotypical witch. So I, I think that's that's all a, a play on that. Got it. But yeah, the, the way she speaks, she does speak uh, very formally and uh, politely, so... It's not something you necessarily expect from a, a kid her age, and certainly not the way Isidro himself speaks. The other kind of reveal thing happens that happens here is Farnese's reaction to magic. Uh, she she looks immediately nervous because you know she feels guilty for what she has done, and she's now she's encountering an actual witch. It's like acknowledging that those that she had burned were not real witches. Now here's a real witch. What will th- what will happen to me now? Basically, yeah. Is she going to take her revenge on her? <laughs> and, of course, it makes it interesting because she herself becomes a magic user. So uh, it's interesting how full circle that this an- this initial uh, anxiety became reality for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the emotional journey. Uh, this is a small detail, but one thing I also liked is that uh, after Shirke cast the uh, pentagram uh, and it looks like the trolls are about to descend on them, Isidro grabs Casca, and then Puck grabs Evalera yeah. in the same way. It's oh. <laughs> that part was really funny to me. Yeah, and and Evalera, uh, she does a kind of she would say bends back. Uh, yeah. I don't know. If, I'm not sure. The she- life's been squeezed out of her by Puck. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Anyway, on the previous on the previous page, uh, Puck actually is hugging Evalera and saying, "I missed you." Uh, yeah, like he hasn't seen an elf in so long, of course. <laughs> So I find it interesting the way Mira chose to depict magic here. Obviously, 
He starts with some things that looks good, but he's not actually like very impressive from Shuka's perspective. It's just a small spell, a small ritual of protection, and then she just blows some strands of hair to uh, get the, the trolls to run away. But uh, I mean, it's it wasn't. It's it's back to what we you were saying about. Uh, the kind of magic people would expect nowadays in a fantasy series. You know, it's a guy throwing fireballs uh, or thunderbolt or magic missiles, that kind of stuff. And Mira chose to keep it very grounded, uh, very different from that. You've got the summoning, which we're not going to get into here because that's from for part two, but the summoning is very specific. Uh, you know, almost shamanic in, na- in nature and, and, you know, grandiose in the way in what it can do. And then you've got, uh, that kind of ritual of protection, which is both impressive, but at the same time, not very destructive. And, um, and yeah, it requires preparation. And it's also something I- I'm thinking back to, uh, episode, uh, 363, where, uh, in that forest, Isidro moves very quickly and he comments on how Shiroke is slow. And, and you know, the way that her ritual requires time and preparation in order to be done. You know, it's not something she can just snap her fingers and, you know, put the trolls on fire. It's just interesting. And it makes me think when he, uh, decided to expand the world that way and create these concepts, he knew that basically guts at his sword, he could just like butcher butcher trolls in just, you know, a few seconds. So he had to do something different. And uh, yeah, I just think it's interesting to think uh, of the way he builds that so that it would be complementary to what already existed uh, and not uh, something that would compete with it. I don't know if if I'm clear. No, yeah, Yeah, that's actually exactly how Miura frames it in the guidebook interview when he talks about the introduction of magic he was careful to make sure that magic, while powerful, didn't supersede, you know, guts on oh. a sword because it wow. had to be something that requires preparation and takes time to do. Like everything you just said is basically in the kind I, of interview. So I have not read that interview, just so people yeah. know. I still haven't read it because uh, I don't know. I don't know why, actually. So I'm pretty proud of myself right now. <laughs> it's nice. a good interview. People I, should read it. I haven't read it either. So that was a cool detail. Shamanistic is a great way to describe it, too, because it is really literally communing with spirits a lot of the time. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's a very interesting way. Again, it, it goes back to, and I think it's, uh, I mean, it's obviously smart as a storyteller that he tries to get back to the root, the root of things. Instead of just inspiring, just doing what other people are doing now, just go back to what originally, like the original tales that inspired everything else and try to make your own spin on that. And that's how you also get uh, creatures like trolls who are, like you said uh, at the beginning, Walter, they are very specific. In the end, you look at the, while it's true that they look like the ones from Willow, you look at the trolls from, from Berserk as they're like very, very specific in, in, uh, in nature. Mm-hmm. Over on the Grail. All right. Well, the next episode is titled The Mansion of the Spirit Tree Part 1. We return to Guts and the group not long after the events of the previous episode. Uh, Shirke's spell is still affecting Isidro, and he's very frustrated by her besting him with her ability after insulting his swordsmanship. Nevertheless, Guts and the others are grateful for him for saving Farnese and Casca when he did. 
after Isidro put his life on the line to save Casca yet again, Guts reflects on his assault on Casca and his determination never to let such an attack happen to her again. Serpico comments that Casca has taken to Farnese, as Guts silently observes. He acknowledges as they walk on with the group that somebody else will have to save her from now on, and for now that's fine because he feels like he would only hurt her. Meanwhile, Isidro's monkey spell has worn off, and Serpico is considering the presence of trolls and a witch in the woods. Listening to them talk, Guts wonders if an apostle might be around as well. Suddenly, the group comes upon a man lying face down in their path. After a quick sprinkle of healing dust from Puck, the man named Morgan explains that he and his five companions were attacked by trolls, and he was the only one left. He hails from Enoch Village, about an hour away. The group offers to escort him home, but Morgan refuses, stating that he needs to go somewhere first. Morgan goes on to explain that the rel- until relatively recently, trolls were only a local legend, but since the night that they arrived, they've ruined the lives of the villagers by destroying crops, stealing livestock, and abducting women and children. Morgan continues to say that Enoch was already devastated by war with the Kushans, and now, with the threat of the trolls, the village is on the verge of being wiped out, which he's determined to prevent. He explains without, that without any help from the local lord, he's forced to seek out the help of a witch. As the group su- at the group's surprise reactions, Morgan describes a local legend about a witch who resides in a mansion, and only those she allows can approach it. He adds that children were said to have been able to visit the mansion, but it was never proven proven to exist. As they discuss the witch, they pass by a tree with a spiral marking on it. Their passing has alerted the, uh, Shirke from the previous episode, or the witch from the previous episode, which is revealed to be Shirke, and she summons elementals to assist her in warding off Guts and his companions. As the group continues, Puck comments on the area, giving him a familiar feeling. Because the group was somehow able to pass through the barrier, they soon arrive at the giant tree with the house at its base. We have arrived at the episode's titular tree mansion. Puck can see sparkly things around the, around the mansion, and Isidro comments that the house looks like it's straight out of a fairy tale. Uh, Morgan reveals that he was one of the children he mentioned earlier who was able to visit the witch's mansion, but never but nobody ever believed him, so he had convinced himself that he had dreamt visiting it. Meanwhile, Isidro is busy plotting his revenge against the young witch who had bested him earlier. Puck comments that he'll just get transformed into a monkey again. Suddenly, Guts and Casca feel both their brands reacting to something in the area. Guts instructs Isidro to get away from what appears to be a huge rotund statue near the entrance of the tree mansion. As Puck explains that the statue is a golem, a helper for witches, the earthen guardian comes to life and grabs for Isidro, who is caught unawares and is clearly out of his element. Guts jumps into action, slashing the golem's arm off with great sweeps of the dragon slayer, but it's soon clear that the tree mansion's guard can regenerate limbs from the earth itself. Guts wonders if the golem is inhabited by a dead spirit or perhaps is an apostle's minion. The group looks around now to find themselves surrounded by smaller golems as they emerge from the, from the ground. Isidro wonders if he should be scared or just laugh at the ridiculous situation. So this one was jam-packed. This one was huge. A huge episode. Yeah, it's very dense. Like. You should catch your breath. It's very dense. I know. <laughs> But uh, it was exciting to read because I didn't read. I don't remember all this being in a single episode. Uh, just because I read it uh, in a volume, I don't really think. Oh, this is where the new episode starts, and this one is where it ends. Uh, so we're getting a lot of information about the state of the world after the Kushan invasion. Again, it's kind of 
been a recurring thing where people are talking about since the invasion, since the invasion. Uh, but this is um, another example kind of mixed in with the fact that since, you know, Griffith's incarnation, things have changed. And uh, we're also still hot off of uh, Shirke's first interaction with the with the group and the arrival to the mansion. It's just like there's so much information being thrown at you. You're really um, yeah. kind of reeling from it. One thing I'll say is uh, I, I like the fact we get a, a call back to the the beast and the danger that Guts poses. And I very much yeah. like that uh, panel where you see it lurking like a, a small little dog in the, you know, in the darkness behind Guts. I, I think that's uh, very good. Um, I also think there's uh, some great humor in that, uh, in that one, you know. Um, yeah. When uh, Isidro's uh, still, you know, doing the monkey thing and they're like, Casca is agitating some stuff over his head and he can't help yeah. but try to grab it like a monkey. I, I, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny and bizarre that he, he, he acknowledges that he's been transformed and he can't help himself. It's just a really funny, bizarre circumstance. Yeah. Right. He's just really annoyed about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Against his will. That fuels his uh, desire for revenge. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, you, you, you pointed out the beast. I just wanted to say that visually, that's a very cool panel because it's, it actually is literally in Gus's shadow. The way it's appearing like that, kind of behind yeah. him through his shadow. I thought that was a very cool little touch. Hmm. As well. We also, I like the fact we, like so much emphasis is put on the brand. Because again, it's something, like it sounds obvious to us now, at least to me, but placing the brand like that at the center of so much stuff within the uh, context of magic in the series, like the fact the brand allows them to see astral creatures, the brand allows them to easily go through that barrier, uh, that mm-hmm. spiral barrier that's put on the trees. Uh, yeah, I just, I just think it's interesting and it's a very elegant way to integrate Guts and Casca within the larger context of magic of, in, in, within the world. And it's something, of course, Floa, uh, touches upon in the next, uh, episodes. Yeah, it makes it seem like it was the intention all along. Like, oh, he planned this from the start, sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I mentioned, uh, during the episode which that Puck is shown to be familiar. Like he recognizes her outfit, he recognizes the magic ritual, and the same way when they get to the uh, mention of the spirit tree, which, by the way, I absolutely love that two-page spread. I think it's a really gorgeous design for the the mention. Uh, he also recognizes a feeling, you know, familiar feeling, uh, because it reminds him of again Elfelm, his village, or rather the uh, magician village uh, on Skellig, which is you know. Uh, Something, once more, Mira planned all along that this would take place at a time where we didn't know anything yet about the island. So pretty, pretty far in advance, recognizing yeah. that there are sparkly things. It also shows us that Puck basically never cared to learn about any of that stuff. He just recognizes it while <laughs> not knowing anything because all he does all day long is just uh, pester people and, you know, <laughs> trick, trick. He's just a trickster, like his name implies. He's just farting around. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Steal stuff, <laughs> eat food, uh, you know, create trouble for people. The essentials. There's, uh, we talked about the brand earlier, and there's a couple things that are interesting. Azil, you already kind of addressed it, but 
uh, it's almost natural that the brand has some kind of magical uh, reaction or rea- magic reacts to it and it reacts to magic. But it also influences our perception of what the brand you know is. And we've talked about the, the, the magic that the God Hand wield is kind of a dark kind of magic or a sacrificial magic. I think that sort of influ- informs, you know, ultimately what we're going to learn about the nature of the God Hand's um, power. I think that would be great if that mm-hmm. was the case. Um, I also really just like, uh, I don't know why, but uh, Morgan, <laughs> I always like these everyman people that you get to hear about their lives. You know, the common person in Berserk, what's, we know what the, basically the superhero version of a character in Berserk, what their lives are like, but here's someone who's, you know, their whole life is just getting beat up. You know, the way he describes the village, <laughs> yeah. you know, not only is it being taxed heavily because of the war and the Kushan, you know, their liege is not even there because he is off fighting in Britannia, so he can't offer them any aid. Yeah. And the trolls are now, you know, raiding their villages, so stealing their crops and their people. Mm. So it's made a bad situation like 10 times worse. So they, they're at the, their wits' end and they're reaching out for help. So yeah. I like this, this whole background story with Morgan. One thing yeah. you mentioned, Grail, uh, <clears throat> about guts, and I, that I also really liked, is guts. So far, all he's known about supernatural, supernatural stuff is uh, apostles and members yeah. of the God Hand. And so, yeah, he's troll and a witch, and his immediate reaction is, "Could there be an apostle?" Yeah, I like that. It's actually what should happen. You know, sometimes you watch a movie or something, you say, oh, this character should, should not do this or should <laughs> do this. And here is exactly what you would expect him to do. He's like, yeah, this has got to be an apostle nearby. What else could it be? And and uh, and he actually goes on again about that when he sees Flora, he wonders. And so I just like that he it takes a while for him to understand or be convinced rather that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, that can be something that's not apostle-based. There's this there's this panel uh, at the very top of the page right after they say a witch, and yeah, it's that it's this knowing panel of guts looking down with an ellipsis next to him. And in any other series, that would be oh, that's it. Guts knows something's up, so something is up. It's telling the readers guts is aware of something happening, and you you as a reader should notice that this is also going to be a bad thing. Is what that panel does. Of course, it's really just. Guts has a reservation about things that are supernatural because he equates mm. all supernatural things with his experience, the, the apostles, yeah. the god hand, sacrificial power. Yeah. To him, it's all part of the same package. What, of course, we learn in this volume that there's quite a bit more to the berserk world, but you know, Guts has no exposure to that. So. Yeah. He had never yeah, met a nice person before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guts has had some, some bad times. But I think that's a great point that, that Mira has the task in this volume of kind of taking the reader by the hand and both explaining what, what he wants them to know about the world, but also conveying the characters based on their experience. They're kind of coming along with them for the ride, trying to understand what's going on. And Guts, of course, is got his experience which is limited to you know understanding the apostles he's very good at what he does with the apostles but you know how does that translate to taking out and uh you know trolls or what have you later on in in the volume with this um this reservation that guts has this this assumption that it must be an apostle or god hand related which is throughout this volume until he meets flora really you know what it reminds me of is uh in the forest with jill and jill tells him about pcaf you know he has the same conclusion yeah. That Picaf sacrificed, you know, the, his parents to, to that's, that's why his appearance was altered. Uh, why he looked like an elf or a half breed, basically, because he was an apostle. 
Actually, now now that we've hear later the legend of Picaf over on when they first arrive on Skellig, it makes me wonder what the real truth of that matter is. You know, was Picaf <laughs> probably wasn't anything to do with the apostles and Gotham? Maybe it really was just a a human half elf. But uh, well, at the time it's because he he relates it to Roshin. You know that that's why he mm-hmm. comes to that conclusion. He's not talking so much about Picaf himself, but about the context in which Jill is applying it. I think. Ah, I couldn't remember in my head which one he was concluding about, but the golem design I wanted to talk about. Um, I think it's just really cool. I like this idea of it being, and we learned about a little bit later about how they're clay based, uh, but they have these symbols on them. And I can't remember in which well, episode it is that we learn. I was Go about ahead. to tell you, uh, I mentioned that the, the concept of the four elements comes from uh, ancient Greece. Uh, I don't know if you would call it science or spirituality, whatever. And these are the same as that they had at the time. And so the top one is a one for earth and the bottom one is a one for water. And so, yeah, they are made of clay, of basically mm-hmm. uh, earth and, and water, of mud. And um, and that's why they've got these symbols on them. And we actually explained, I think, when they get their weapons, uh, I know Isidro's dagger, it's got the fire uh, symbol on it. That's right, that's it. Mm-hmm. Serpico has got the, the wind. So, But yeah, they, they actually, they are the original symbols that were used for these elements uh, back when people believed that kind of stuff. That's cool. And and yeah, Azil, you already mentioned it, but you know, we, we haven't discussed a lot about uh, the visuals in, in this in this volume so far, but um it really is all about atmosphere. Uh and particularly in this volume or in this episode, when we first see Flora's mansion, it really does create this very peaceful atmosphere. Even though it is just in black and white, you see these sun rays, you know, coming through the canopy of trees. Uh and it does just give you a totally different sense that it really doesn't exist until we get over to Skellig of just, you know, it's peaceful. It's not this other, everywhere. Every other part of the berserk world is almost like a, like a horror or a movie or uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's basically a, a world that has been exploited by humans. And here is where mm. humans have become in tune with nature. So it's totally different uh, feeling here as well. Yeah. They even mention it uh, when they say, Oh, there's a tree growing out of the house. And then yeah. actually now it's like uh, the house is growing out of the tree, the other way around. So it's uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was the troll appearance. You know, uh, Morgan mentions that the trolls appeared on the first night of winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we learn later, of course, that it's, it's tied to uh, Femto's incarnation. So it kind of gives you a date. Now, whether it happened on the day of Finto's incarnation or around that area, I think it's probably safer. But in any case, there's a correlation between you know yeah. his appearance <clears throat> and, and now with, his, with the troll appearance. And, and uh, you can see that Guts is reflecting back and he's got that silent look and that silent bubble. Uh, as in he's putting it together uh, that, yeah, that, that night the whole world changed. I think he kind of understands that it must be related to to what happened uh, at the at the tower. I thought of that panel though as guts when he says as if all that before was a lie. I thought it was a kind of like guts reflecting on his own experience with learning about the supernatural and and that learning that the world is not as simple or as human populated as you might know is 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 as basic as you might have known. 
Yeah, it he's could been be. battling ghosts yeah. and specters and such for the past two years, three years. Yeah, that's true. It could. Uh, well, I mean, that's the beauty of a silent panel. It could be. Yeah, <laughs> you can totally. interpret it several ways, but uh, yeah, you know what? maybe, maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, I guess that's it for this one. I do like all the varied shapes and sizes of the golems. Um, yeah. It's just some of them are meant for. You know, making tea. <laughs> some of them are meant for guarding, I guess. Um, yeah, some of them are. Yeah, there's a, a lot of different varieties. And they're not really scary. That's what's fun, kind of funny about this episode is yeah. even when they first appeared, I remember it wasn't like they gave an atmosphere of terror or anything. You know, they're imposing. They're big, but they're also just sort of goofy. Like that last yeah. page of this episode, they're just kind of silly looking. That's why Sidro said he wasn't sure if he should yeah. laugh or be scared. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I like that. And uh, like you said, I also like that Mira didn't go the, the lazy way. I mean, I feel bad saying it's lazy because I'm sure even uh, when you're a mangaka and you actually have to draw, like to pull out a, a chapter each week or something like that in Chonin Jump, it's a... It's a super hard life, but yeah, he he actually got to the trouble of making them unique, not just uh, duplicating them and you know making copies of each other, and that's that's pretty cool. Uh, the effort is worth it because the result makes it more believable. I ca- I can't think of golems anymore, and not think about Grail's uh, image on the Okaki back in the day where she had them uh, like, being <laughs> baked in the oven by, by Flora. The gingerbread golems. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, they yeah, look tasty. Pretty funny. Uh, on to the next episode, Mansion of the Spirit Tree Part 2. The fight with the golems continues as the group tries various tactics to no avail. Sidro realizes you can use a stick and it's a little bit more effective because it's more dense, right? But they keep regenerating from mud, kind of like the, the T-1000. Uh, but when Casca spots their core, which is their cute little tiny figures in their chest, Serpico realizes that if that gets smashed, they can't regenerate. So mm-hmm. in no time, the fight is over. Uh, Flora urges Shirke to invite them in against her wishes. Asidro describes Flora's house as making them feel like a squirrel on the inside of a tree. And you can see all sorts of unique little items like the Mandragora from the Dreamcast games, which gets a little cameo there. And Puck says that it sort of takes him back home, so he's reminded of uh, Elfhelm. Then we meet Flora, and she is not at all what the group expected, or really probably what readers expected. Uh, so instead of an old, warty, long-nosed witch, she looks like a peaceful old woman. And she says she's been waiting for the branded two. That's the summary. Um, the first thing I wanted to note was, uh, I realized this when I was looking back at our old discussions of these episodes, but you know, we didn't know at the time that Shirke wasn't the witch that Morgan had been looking for. Because she's introduced as the, the episode's title is the you know witch, uh, and she is a witch, and then we see her right on the mansion. You know, all assumptions are that she is the witch that is being sought, and then we learn that she's just an apprentice witch. Uh, the real witch is inside, and then we finally see her in this episode, which I thought was interesting, kind of switcheroo. Uh, the other thing, big thing to me is. Flora's appearance, uh, her her peaceful demeanor, the atmosphere of her, is really unlike anything we'd seen in the Berserk world before uh, Denon. Uh, and it kind of made me think about what that meant for Berserk. You know, the world of Berserk, it's really a, like a series about angry old men seeking revenge. You know, the big, the big stars of <laughs> Berserk are angry old men, really. Um, oh, God, she's not that old. Hmm, sorry? 
Well, he just looks old. Guts, he's had a hard yeah, life. Yeah, I was going to say, Guts, he's not old. Okay, he's 22. Does He he's, He feels like an old man. Yeah. <laughs> grumbling all the time. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to get stuck on the old man. But it's part. true. You don't see a lot of old women in Berserk in this way, like uh, highlighted like this. Well, I guess the the point I'm I'm trying to make is that you know Flora is not consumed by revenge. You know she has somehow made a made these brushes with the God Hand, presumably uh, throughout her time okay, traveling with Geyseric or Skull Knight or whatever happened with her, and yet mm. you know she did not have the same uh, result uh, that Guts mm. and, and Skull Knight had happened to Guts and Skull Knight. She has somehow managed to get unscathed. You know her life is not uh, consumed by rage and revenge, unlike theirs. So, mm. Well, so that was for, nice. Same goes for Rickert. That's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. yeah, I do. I do very much agree that uh, the atmosphere and the way it's rendered here is uh, quite amazing. The, like you said, the gentle feelings. Uh, I don't know the softness. It feels very peaceful. Uh, and every time I read uh, these pages, I always feel like I myself feel at peace, like the characters, mm. you know. And I don't don't exactly know how Mira pulled it off. If it's a way he drew the light if it's the way he drew her face or whatever but yeah it does you can feel that it's a calm peaceful a place where there's no uh how to say danger which is quite quite amazing uh to do that just from that uh, that atmosphere yeah i think it's the texture there's so much texture uh and it's all very soft you know wood foliage Flowers, you know, all these very soft feeling things that yeah. are very evocative. The organic shape yeah. of the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's totally. very, very no soft. hard edges. Everything's curved or bent in a way. You know, it's all very calming. Uh, and it's very, very different from the rest of the series, obviously. It reminds me of uh, Vargas's plate, in contrast to Vargas's place. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. In the early volume. <laughs> yeah, the no. last time we saw elves and. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, no elves uh, in the test tubes this time. No no tested elves. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, a couple things that Shirake says that I thought were, were interesting. You know, she notices that they seem accustomed to fighting like this, uh, mm. which is true because, you know, they've been fighting specters every night. So it's not only that they are accustomed to fighting together uh, in that group dynamic kind of thing. They're also facing the supernatural every night, so they don't have that initial mm. shock that throws them off their balance, that they get overwhelmed by something that's not human. You know, they're used to this, yeah. so they bounce back pretty quickly, and, and Shirke makes yeah. notice of that. They adapted pretty quickly, and with Casca's help, which I thought was a yeah. uh, detail. Yeah, she should get uh, props for actually being the one who finds a weakness. Yeah. Yeah. She likes playing with shit. You know? She likes uh, grabbing onto small stuff. Yeah. She's <laughs> just like a cat, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we also get uh, when Shirke is observing that they made it here. Uh, she thinks about uh, Griffith. She wonders if this is an uh, effect of the appearance of the hawk that they were able to make it through. Uh, you know, Mira's introducing all these things about how things are warping the barrier between the worlds. You know, and this is really a tease for what's really happening, but it's not fully explained until until later. As they're heading to Cliffoth, that you get that explanation from Shirke that definitively it was the appearance of, you know, Griffith or the Falcon uh, that did this to the world. Mm-hmm. But it's a tease for now. Yeah, I like that. It's also called back to her introduction in Volume Twenty Two, which is very short, and uh, it's it's uh, I think it's pretty unique to have a character introduced like two volumes in advance before she actually enters the story proper. 
So I thought that was uh, also an interesting way to tie that back together. The fact she actually journeyed, uh, presumably pretty far away. Uh, and, and, you know, you can even tie that back to the fact Flora was really preparing her for the fact she would be leaving because she knew herself was, was dying and she didn't want Shiroke to, I don't know, stay by herself or something. Yeah, but baby's day out. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. So it's, uh, no, it's, it's, uh, I find it interesting. Another thing is the fact the, the big golem, the one that actually seems built to fight, you can, you can see that it's got moss all over it and it's even got, um, Fuck, I don't know what you call, you call that. That plant, you know. Uh, ivy? Yeah. He's got ivy growing on him. So presumably he doesn't get much use because no one ever comes by that needs <laughs> a giant thing to fight them off. So it's only, right. it's only the small guys that are used to carrying the tea tray and whatever that, that gets some use. So They got a little grass on them. That's yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. The, by contrast, the small one just ends up giving a Sidra like a back hug. Like yeah. Hugging just, his, his butt, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Um, the, the the comedy in this episode I thought was really funny. I liked one of my favorite Puck moments, really. It's when he puts the bottle over his head and he's, he like he's, a, he's an astronaut or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, but he can't get it off. And progressively on that page, he's trying to get it off and he can't. And then he's like suffocating, trying yeah. to get Asidra's attention. And Guts is the one that goes over there and breaks both of the bottles at the <laughs> same time. Yeah. So that was funny the way he and did Citro that. Citro gets a nosebleed afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> I like. So yeah, it's also and it's a continuation of uh, of the thing between Isidro and Shiruke where she she doesn't want to say he grabbed her boobs, and so you've got Ivarla who's continuously saying you know uh, boobs. You mean boobs? And she's like, oh, it's a weird place. <laughs> and Isidro is like, what? I won't understand if you don't say the word. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just so dumb. It's just so dumb. <laughs> the whole thing. It's clearly like two adolescents talking yeah, to each other. Yeah, it's exactly. The yeah. teasing itself is, is it's so realistic. It's the kind of thing that I had forgotten. That's how kids act that I wouldn't have known. Like if I were a writer, I wouldn't have been able to land such a grounded, like actual way that kids tease each other. Yeah. You know, it, it feels like it comes yeah. straight from kids, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Authentic. I, I agree. It's again, I mean, uh, I'm sorry to always bring it back to uh, episode 363, but uh it's the same kind of stuff, you know, that kind of kids adventure, there's that feeling you got from, I don't know, watching the Goonies or something. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's not easy to pull off when you're like 50 years old or even, you know, 35 or whatever. It's not something that's necessarily easy to pull off. So it's pretty impressive to. Yeah. You forget. It's the same thing. If you ever try to, uh, replicate a child's drawing. If you have any experience with art or drawing yourself or trying yeah. to make things realistic your whole life, if you try to go back to the way that a kid draws, it's almost impossible to mm-hmm. do the <laughs> same kind of forms that they do. It's pretty yeah. – it, as, as a parent, you'll realize that. Which is also something Mira managed to pull off uh, during That's the right. of Dreams. Yeah. yeah. He does it all. Yeah. He does it all. What a man. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually just looking at the cover again, and, and it kind of ties into that childhood sense of adventure to me also that that this conversation and some parts of this volume kind of communicate so it's really interesting yeah i yeah. i'm i mean isidro's look uh you you've got puck uh with that uh very uh traditional uh, style to him the other guys yeah it's, it's pretty good it's pretty good and it's uh it's also an interesting how to say Way to reintroduce the fact, like what I said uh, at the very beginning, that now God has companions again. 
You know, it's yeah. something like he started with the Black Swordsman, then during the Golden Age arc, we saw that he had companions and we saw how he lost those companions and how that started him on that quest for revenge. And then, you know, he had all these things, the conviction arc, and now he's starting back on these companions again. And so it's also, it's interesting because 23 is, volume 23 is when uh, he accepts these guys uh, for real for the first time. And, and but you know twenty four and twenty five is when it actually solidifies that these guys are companions. They are not just people he travels with because it's convenient. It's actually the beginning of something new, and uh, he realizes it after Enoch. Yeah, and what I find interesting about that, I'm glad you brought it up because I was just thinking about that in the previous episodes. How he's kind of you know uh, blunt with Serpico, and there kind there's that tension there, and there's even a little bit of tension where Isidro's trying to learn from him and he's kind of been blunt with him in the past is just that I think that it goes back and forth like a like a natural relationship where there are times that I think that Guts is like getting used to being part of the group but then he gets frustrated like uh, you know how Casca is saved by Isidro and he's like well I guess other people are going to save her from now on and that, that's got to be a frustrating feeling for him but then there's moments in the in the at the tree mansion where, you know, they, they are really cohesive as a group. So I think Mira does a really good job with that to show that as a group, it's not just, you know, they were separate before and now they're a group and everything's great. It's a very gradual yeah. process. Yeah. What's, I think what the actual accomplishment is that it feels very gradual and progressive and natural while it's actually done in a relatively short time. You know, mm-hmm. it's pretty condensed, but when you read it and when you think back on it, it doesn't feel condensed. It feels like it's been very gradual. And it's true. You think back, Isidro was introduced at the beginning of volume uh, 18. Yeah. Then it's it's a thing where he, Gus uh, drops him off. He keeps sticking with him. Then Gus has to rely on him. Uh, same thing with Farnese and Serpico. They're enemies at first. Then they end up being not really enemies, but they're not friends. Then they catch up with him. So it's a, some things. These characters are introduced. You get familiar to them. Then they join the group, which is the group up, which can feel like a surprise. Then progressively, they become actual companions. And nowadays, like it feels extremely natural. And it's some things that he managed to do, uh, yeah, in, in a relatively short amount of uh, episodes. Yeah, I think the, the challenge for Miura was always going to be uh, guts getting over the past, the the loss of his past companions. You know yeah. what was going to be the avenue for him to actually accept companions, and then also to appreciate not just as tools to help him and Casca survive, but also as companions. You know, and I feel the past two volumes, and uh, sorry, twenty three through twenty six, when guts finally realizes, hey, I kind of like these guys in the companions title episode. Mm-hmm. It's like it has finally been earned, that that title of companion has finally been earned for Guts, mm-hmm. where he acknowledges or realizes that along the way they become companions. Yeah, right. It's no longer just a necessity. Right. Yep. And it's also done in such a way that it doesn't invalidate what is lost. He gains... Exactly. That's always be- been the challenge. Yeah, because it's not... Like, if he had gained these guys again in, like, volume 16, you would have been, okay, well, he's just moving on. Why does he even care? But it's been so long. It's, it's portrayed as him having been alone for so long that he, he's barely managed to stay human thanks to Puck. Then he's got Casca that's driving him off from the path of revenge. 
And because he's a danger, he's forced to accept these guys. And because he's forced to accept them, it also brings him back um, some more towards, you know, normalcy. And, you know, and so, yeah, so that's also what makes it interesting is that very, you know, gradual progression and the fact he's had a period where he was uh, just by himself or just with Puck and being a... Uh, yeah, a loner, uh, antisocial, and uh, borderline uh, psychotic. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so the next episode is called The Astral World, and it's a big one, guys, so uh, bear with me. So Guts uh, immediately wonders, of course, if Sloak could be an apostle, which is pretty funny, but again, makes sense because of his experience on the matter. But before he can ask more, she wants to deal with Morgan's plight. Uh, the trolls worry her too, uh, but she can't help him because she's dying and in fact very near death despite how she looks. However, she volunteers Shuriki's aid, much to the surprise of her disciple. Isidro in Shuriki's banter is in full force here as she, he comments on everything pretty closely, including Frost State and teases Shuriki about also pretty much everything. Um, Flora then asks Guts to help Shuriki out. She's unwilling to do it, but since she promises him talismans in return, he relents. She explains to him that the power of the brand uh, carries is beyond imagination, and it's not something she can remove. However, uh, her talismans can lessen its effects. That means drawing less evil spirits near them, and also preventing them from being possessed. It wouldn't be permanent, but would be enough for them to reach their destination. That immediately changes Guts' mind, uh, as Flora no doubt knew it would. One look at Casca is enough. So uh, she pushes Shiroke to introduce herself and prepare a meal for them and a bath. Uh, and she reassures Guts that they'll be safe for the night. So this is memorable uh, as the first peaceful night they've had in a long, long time. And again, as we mentioned earlier, it goes along with the peaceful atmosphere of the place. Uh, during the meal, Flora reveals that she received a, a prophecy from a friend in the astral world that they would come. Of course, it's later revealed to be the Skull Knight. But her mentioning the astral world also prompts a question from Isidro about that. And then she and Shiroki explain what the astral world is and what the makeup of the world is. This is a big moment in Berserk uh, for explaining how the world works. So I'm going to get into it now. Uh, because we haven't gotten really anything more since then. So, what's the astral world? It's the realm of the dead, where spirits dwell, uh, a world humans normally can't see, or very rarely so, they can get a glimpse, until they die. Uh, it's explained that there are three overlapping worlds in Berserk. There's a corporate world, where everybody stands, it's material, you can touch stuff. There's the astral or spiritual world, and then there's the ideal world. They each have their own properties and rules. Humans, plants, animals occupy the corporate world. Spiritual beings like elves, trolls, or the ghosts of dead humans who cling to life occupy the astral world. Uh, there's a very wide, gen wide range of these creatures. They are split in different territories with different uh, styles. And the deeper you go, the more otherworldly the beings uh, living there become. And of course, like I mentioned, there's the, the third world, which we get very little information about and haven't heard of since then. Um, in the manga, in Japanese, it's actually called 
Idea no Sekai, meaning the word of Idea. Uh, and it's described by Shiruki as being the root of existence. I use the word idea, and uh, those who listen to this podcast regularly know I use it like that. That's because it's Omura uh, words it. It's based on the Greek word, not the English one. Uh, and it's loosely based on Plato's theory of forms, also known in other parts of the world as a theory of ideas. So it's not just a place where ideas float, as you'd understand the common definition of the word in English. It's more like the concept of things uh, and, and what that creates in the other words. Anyway, practically nothing is known about this. Uh, we don't get any more information, but it's worth mentioning because, of course, it ties to the idea of evil, the god of the abyss. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, considered to be, like, you know, Shiroki says, the origin of all things. So it's a pretty big deal. Anyway, Mira addresses uh, a lot of things in this episode when he talks about the astral world. He explains how people can sense astral beings because their own astral self is being touched by these astral beings and that feeling transferred to their corporal bodies. He explains why nowadays less and less people can perceive the astral world and astral beings because the teachings of the Holy See and the growing scarcity of said astral beings uh, who become entrenched in the astral world so they interact less and less with corporal beings results in that. And he also explains that uh, you can't just stop believing to make astral beings disappear because humans still subconsciously know that they actually really exist. So you even have a panel where Perk directly uh, explains, oh, that's why Farnese can now see me fine when before she couldn't. is because she's seen so much supernatural stuff, specifically bad stuff, that now she knows uh, this thing exists and she, she's been uh, broken out of the state of mind she was before. So all of these things are explained. It's it's very important. I find that people often uh, still wonder about these things where well, you just got to read this episode. It's all explained there. Uh, we're also told that witches can separate the astral body from their corporal body to venture into the astral world. It's something we see Shiruke do very often uh, when she goes to uh, commune with uh, spirits deep down in the astral world uh, with her body of light. That's what she does. It's an astral projection. Her astral body leaves the corporeal one. Um, and Flora also explains, uh, you know, about the brand. She explains that Gus Group, they are able to perceive the astral beings uh, because of the brand. It means they exist in the interstice, which is the shallowest layer of the astral world, the one which is closest to the corporeal world. Uh, as you get to the deeper layers, uh, the scenery becomes very different, and that's where more powerful spirits reside, like those Shuriki uh, calls upon for aid, uh, which of course aren't mentioned here, they come, they come later on. Uh, we just simply explain that the astral bodies of humans can't compare to them in terms of power and everything like that. She mentions angels, demons, the gods of polytheism, uh, and of course that means beings like the four kings of the elemental world, as well as the god hand. Deeper still than that, people are separated according to their karma. Uh, she explains that places like heaven or hell might exist there, and on the page is a familiar site, the vortex of souls. So we know from volume 3 that the vortex of souls is actually hell. It's where the souls with bad karma end up. Uh, if heaven exists, we haven't seen it yet, and it must be elsewhere in that ocean of souls where people become one. 
And finally, the next step, as you explained, uh, well, actually, Dako translates it at further still, but in Japanese, it says the next step. It's in the abyss. We are not told more than that. Again, it's just, you said, an ellipsis. But from volume 13, we know that what's in the abyss at the bottom of the vortex, it's God, the God of the abyss, the idea of evil. Uh, the episode ends with Flora underlining that the world is profoundly deep and complex and can't be summed up in a simple manner, uh, and that exploring the universe from within one's world, that is a way of magic, the way of a magician. And that is it. Thank you so oh, much. that's a doozy. Yeah. I like how this episode is segmented between almost like formal negotiations. Uh, it starts with... You know, Guts kind of, kind of butting in saying, listen, lady, we walked a long way and we want some answers. Yeah. <laughs> she says, hang on a second. Morgan's issue is more pressing and they deal with that. Then it goes on to Flora proposing the solution for Enoch and then all everybody shaking hands. I just like how kind of like businesswoman like she is in this scene. Like everything was managed perfectly. Everyone's tempers were fine. You know, it's just a nice calm little scene. Well, she's very experienced, so I'm sure. <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, Flora... Like, she comes across as pretty badass. She's mm-hmm. a little lady in her chair, and she herself says, well, I'm, I'm almost dead. But she almost manipulates Guts into agreeing with her. Actually, I would say she does clearly manipulate him into doing what she wants. And I would say that from the beginning, she had it in mind that Shiroke should go with them. Uh, leave her, you know, I, I mean, even if she hadn't been attacked by apostles as we, we see later on, I think she, she would have expected Shiroke to actually live with the group. So it's interesting to, to think about that. Well, she, she knew the exact right leverage to hang in front of Guts, you know, the brand, subduing the brand's effects. Exactly. And Guts has a different thing in mind. You know, one might think subduing the effects of the brand at night gives them a night, not, an extra night of sleep, right? But for Guts, it's more personal than that. It's, you know, it's preventing himself from being taken over uh, and harming those that he loves. Mm, from becoming yeah. a danger, yeah. Interesting thing to say that she got that uh, prophecy or oracle or prediction from a, a friend in the astral world. It's, um, I mean, it feels like nothing to us now, but at the time to, you know, when we reveal that is a Skull Knight, it says a lot about him. You know, I mean, people, of course, we knew... He's a, an empty suit of armor with glowing eyes. But again, it's one step towards explaining in what state he exists. So it's a little thing, but again, little details that actually has meaning. And, you know, when you put all of them together, it shows a bigger picture. It's a very definitive line about the Skull Knight. And I don't know that there's a counterpart to it in the series. <laughs> but he specifically resides in the astral world, you know, not just gliding along the interstice necessarily. Um I think it's very specific. Yeah. Uh, and there's not a lot of this very specifically defined about the Skull Knight, so it kind of stands out. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of little notes about this episode because, th- I mean, no kidding, I don't know of a more info dump episode in the series. I mean, this is it. I don't, uh, the whole, the, the second half of the episode is just definition after definition of the way that the world works. Um, but I wanted to start with... Guts realizes that the brand is reacting to Flora, but it's it's different. It's a different kind of sensation. Yeah. I was wondering if that's the first time we realized that the brand is reacting to magical things. I think it reacts to Skull Knight. I can't remember, though. Um, but it's a different 
sensation. Maybe that's Puck I'm thinking about that Puck realizes. It does. It does. I think I'm pretty sure uh, it does. It's guts, like guts, faintly or something like that. He says. Guts can feel when the Skull Knight is near. He always knows right. it's him. But what's interesting is I wonder if it's specifically Flora that he's detecting like this because of the way that she's artificially extended her life. That it, it might not have been Shirke because he was talking to Shirke before without even saying anything about the brand. But in the presence of Flora, he says it. So it's something about her. I think it's just because she's she's so badass. She's got so much power. <laughs> it's a badass, badass radio. Like, <laughs> I feel I feel something. It's off the charts. Something's off the charts in this room. <laughs> this lady, this beautiful old lady, by the way. Yeah, she's looking good. I mean, she's, she's looking a, real good. She's a very elegant old lady. Uh, if she just moisturized a little bit more over the past thousand years, she'd be a looker. That's all I'm I saying. Mean, I mean, dude, she's a thousand years old. I think she's moisturized plenty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, she looks better than me, and I'm not 40, so. Yeah, that's part of why it's so shocking when she says, I'm about to die or I'm close to death. It's like, really? Yeah. Well, it's actually funny because she doesn't say, she says it, uh, how to say, a bit in, in a roundabout, elegant way. And she was like, oh, you mean you're going to croak? Boy. I that was <laughs> really Shuki's funny. like, uh, please. Even I feel <laughs> embarrassed for him by proxy whenever he says that. I'm like, ooh, let's not. Yeah. Let's well, not, buddy. I mean, in the same way, uh, uh, I think Gus calls her Babasan or something like that. He, he refers to her in a very uh, not uh, hot say. <laughs> Guts away. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, it's what Gus would say, but it's, it's just not very respectful. <laughs> the timing of her departure, you know, she says that this old body has neither the strength nor the time left to leave this place. It's like the timing of her departure was waiting for an encounter like this. It all integrates so seamlessly that she yeah. goes away basically in tandem with sending Guts out on this journey with Shirke. Yeah. That ultimately leads them to Skellige, et cetera, et cetera. And also, she kept the armor ready to go, perhaps for a moment or an encounter like this. Yeah. Uh, and as we know now, with Guts and Skull Knight being so closely related in terms of their journeys, it's really like she she had this all planned out and to a certain extent. Just not even thinking about, uh, you know, recent episodes or anything like that. It always felt to me like she was holding on. She held out yeah. until they, they came so that she could go and Shirke could go with, with them. You know, just the fact she took that disciple and taught her anything she could, as much as she could. And then they come along and, and she, you know, made it so that they would get acquainted and, and, uh, Shirke would live with them. It always felt to me like she, yeah, she just held on until she could sh- send Shirke off with them. And obviously the fact she's got, she had the, the armor, uh, is also not a coincidence. So. Mm-hmm. I, I fully agree with you here. I like how when Flora proposes that Guts help her, that Guts's immediate reaction is like, whoa, whoa, lady. Uh, we're under no obligation to help out your nice little student here. You know, we've got our own shit to deal with. It's a very Guts moment. You know, there's, there's only a few moments in the series where it's like this, but Guts, like, kind of realist perspective on life, like, Listen, we've got our own journey, you know, and pragmatically is coming out with like, where's my bag of gold? Exactly. Lady? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what's my cre- what's my quest reward for this going to be? And then she says, yeah, you know, talisman. Okay, what, got what's, it. what's interesting is that he it's not even that he doesn't want to help because he doesn't care. It's selfish is because the priority is to get Casca to a safe place. Sure. And he's got his eyes on the prize. Yeah. And so I like that, that he just 
like he he won't forget what his priorities are. So it's it's pretty. And he actually that's also what's great is that she immediately changes his mind when mm-hmm. she dangles a promise of talismans uh, in front of his face. Look at this moment of surprise when she, when Flora describes what the effect of the talisman will be. You know, his what you can do yeah. that like <laughs> one of the rare moments of guts really being caught off guard about the possibility space for magicians. You know. I'll tell you something. What actually I found uh, super cool is that even though she says she she couldn't possibly remove the brand, she actually mentions it as if, yeah, it's, yeah. it's beyond my power, but, yeah. but, you know, know, like maybe it could be done. I can this- actually reduce it just to have any effect on the brand. That's, I mean, I, I, I'm, we've got here. I'm fucking shocked. <laughs> <laughs> this line kind of haunts me whenever I, I answer questions to people about uh, the mark of the brand. Basically, you can't wash it away. You know, I feel like cleansing it completely would be kind of like a, a misstep in the series because it reduces the power of the brand. You know, why that was important to the series. Yeah. I, I don't want to say it's possible, but the way she phrases it is like, it's not in my power. She leaves yeah. it open as if it's possible. Maybe if uh, Griffiths uh, got the Dragon Slayer stuck in his ass, maybe mm. they would. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe that would do the trick. And then Void <laughs> flashed to Void somewhere in like a filing cabinet room, where, like rips up a piece of paper, like, "Oh, that guy's oh. dead. Okay, this 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 signature is invalidated because he's dead. So <laughs> you're clear to go. Bring me <laughs> file A three hundred. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me the file folder marked G for Gr- oh wait, there's a lot of G's, aren't there? Shit, yeah. uh, Griffith. <laughs> and, and you got the little uh, vortex guys, you know, who come here, my lord. Here's the file. <laughs> oh, they're the they're the, the clerks. They're the clerks. Yeah, the file clerks. clerks. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That should be. I a mean, they got nothing else to do, right? Yeah. The, <laughs> the little tendrils, you know, they got some desk, a long, long line of desks, and they want the tendril walking on it. You guys are writing your own Oikaki yeah. script. Before Azil and I recorded this podcast, I asked him to bug Puella enough to look over some of the lines. Because there were some that were, to me, suspect in terms of the way they were phrased. And it came back pretty clean. Um, the one that always stuck out to me is, that can't be right, is uh, the afterlife. Flora describes the astral world as the afterlife. And to me, it just feels so reductive. It feels so human-centric to describe all of the inhabitants of the astral world uh, as just the afterlife. Cause it's, 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 that's just the perception of humans passing through a massive realm of creatures. You know, that's their perception because once they're released from the physical bodies upon death, then they can perceive this massive world. So calling that the afterlife just seems so reductive for what it truly is. And what, what it is, is humans are just an occupant of a massive you know, world with a spectrum of creatures. And you just can't perceive them the way that the world is currently composed. But uh, if whether you're if, if you're dead, your soul is released, and you can suddenly perceive them. Or if you're a magic user, you can you can release your astral body or your ethereal body, the way Dark Horse words it, and then you can perceive these things. So there's a lot of time spent on this episode about perception, and that matters at this point in the series because. They describe how Farnese wasn't able to perceive Puck at first because of the machinations of the Holy See. Has have the doctrine of the Holy See has limited people's worldviews such that they can't perceive things that uh, are not of this world. But really, this whole page is almost invalidated by the events of you know coming Fantasia coming into being. So now, 
it doesn't matter what you believe. Uh, the world is as it is. It, it has been reset mm. to a, a neutral state yeah, where also, everyone endures this. There's also the fact that, uh, and they touch upon it in this uh, in this episode, and they also did um, when, you know, God escapes from the uh, Holy Iron Chain Knights on the horse, yeah. and, and finally they can't see uh, Puck. But when the spirits come, the uh, evil spirits, then she can't help. You know, she, she feels them. And so mm -hmm. that's the thing is that you can, uh, even if you don't believe and you have uh, trouble perceiving them, if a troll comes and, uh, you know, plants an axe in your face, uh, you're not going to be able to disbelieve it. That, that's not how it works. And that's why I, I uh, insisted a bit on it uh, earlier is because, We frequently, I mean, not frequently, a few times we've seen people saying, oh, well, maybe if uh, all of mankind just stops believing. And yeah, no, that's not that's not how it works. It's not a matter of, uh, you know, the God of the abyss becomes more powerful when people believe in no, it. That's not how it works. It's a part if of... If Griff were here, he would be uh, citing the end of the Merlin ministry yeah. Oh, yeah. where they do in He's fact He's done that, that before. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's it's great because uh, the first time I actually saw someone talk about that, I also thought back to that Merlin miniseries. I do not know why. Wow. So, uh, What's an impression? Always, yeah. I Sam Neill is what it is. Sam Neill? Yeah, yeah, it's Sam Neill, great. yeah. It's uh, it is pretty bad, and the the woman uh, I forgot who's the actress. Miranda is. Richardson. Yeah, wow, man, what a memory, guys! I've never even seen this. I just know a lot about it because of these I jokes. I like the actress. Yeah, it's it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty cheesy. Uh, and yeah, yeah. And the, oh, we're just gonna stop believing in you. Yeah. Spoilers. No, no, no. no. <laughs> it's it's, yeah. uh, it's just ridiculous. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and I like the fact that Mura. He lays it all out, how it works, how love work, how the brand works, uh, in, you know, relation to all of that. The fact that can't be tried. And of course, it comes through the mass of Isidro, who's just like, well, what's that astral world thing? Huh? Uh, tell me about that. The other funny thing about Isidro is as soon as Shirke gives him an explanation that things are not that simple, he goes, yeah, yeah, fine, whatever. Like, I don't care. That's too complicated for me. And his brain basically shuts down. And he doesn't understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's over, way over his head. He reveals that he didn't realize what the brand did. Oh, yeah. And uh, and they make they make fun of him. But then you see that Serpico also didn't understand. He's just keeping quiet. He's like, oh, I see. <laughs> so <laughs> I just like that little uh, humor thing where Serpico was also in the dark, but he just plays it cool so no one knows. It's a bit of realism. He really so should have asked. Smart people a stay quiet while dumb people say dumb shit and get corrected. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he really should have asked a couple questions. I, I would have asked, hey, hey, why are we seeing ghosts? You know, and uh, that's what actually what I wanted to talk about was back to perception. You know, with this episode, Miura has to not only expand his world and expectation for the world itself of Berserk expanding and to lay down the rules for that. He also has to meld what he has previously shown with this new worldview. Mm -hmm. And the key to that, to keep that making sense, is that Guts and Casca, are, as, as branded ones, draw these creatures to them. So because you're in proximity to Guts fighting these specters, you around Guts can see these specters. The perception rule is then broken because of your experience with these otherworldly things. I just thought that was interesting the way Mira had worked that in to make it congruent with, for example, what happened in Volume 1 when Guts is traveling in the wagon and then undead start rising Normally, that's not something that would happen to a standard human, but because they're in proximity to guts, suddenly that rule makes sense because of what's explained in this episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also a case of, uh, 
again, it's pretty realistic. We were talking about children's stuff earlier. The mm-hmm. fact that a guy like Serpico would not actually ask, would just play it cool. And even though he's saying crazy stuff, he's just going <laughs> to play it cool because he's that kind of guy. You know, just like on the cliff where he was bluffing, oh, yeah, my comrades have already got the girl. Uh, I've already done, I've planned everything, you know, th- that kind of stuff. That's also his style. He's not the kind who would just say, hey, what's what's going on? You know, it's crazy. So I just, um, yeah, I think I think it's just also realistic, the way it's portrayed. And, and the fact uh, these supernatural things have been happening and because it's gods and because they're with him, they're just not really questioned it. Yeah, there there is a lot of focus on perception because that does that is the key that unlocks this other world. And as we realize when Shirke and Farnese undertake this 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 apple exercise, I think it's volume twenty nine or twenty eight. Yeah. When they start on that, you know, that's all about perception. That's that's the that's the keyhole through which you can see the astral yeah. world, perceiving um, the astral body and not the the corporeal one. I really love the, one of my favorite pages, to be honest, and it's it's conceptual. It is this showing the three panels as you get deeper in the astral world. You know, it starts with the succubus, succubi, uh, sorry, incubi, incubi. and uh, the troll, and then it goes deeper and deeper down until it starts to get otherworldly and large. Wait, 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 wait! wait. You're missing the elves. We see a kind of. Uh Dwarf, half dwarf, half thing, another one. Well, I'm not going to say everything that's on the page. I'm, I'm just saying that's the panel I mean. Okay, I'm only saying that because these guys actually show up in our thumb. Uh, one form or another, so you also see the unicorns. It's, yep. just, it's just a detail. I'm just saying Mura shows them again. It's not something he put in and then forgot. So that's all I wanted to say. Certainly. Yeah, you're right. The unicorns and everything else comes back. and uh, But I like that the way the panel is drawn as you, as you go to the left as it gets deeper you know things get more otherworldly it starts more representational and then it gets and then you can see that the panels as the bottom left of the page get you know deeper and deeper and, and you kind of stop focusing on it until you get to the the vortex of souls i wanted to talk about this last part of this vortex of souls page in the bottom left where she says further still in the bit in the abyss perhaps I think she's talking about the end of of Floor's understanding of what happens in the afterlife. You know, she has a certain understanding of what happens to souls. They're divided according to their own karma, as you said. And then they go to certain places, certain destinations, but uh, further still in the abyss, perhaps. I I mean, it's up to the reader to imagine what she might have, how she might have ended that sentence other than an ellipse. But I think it's, I wonder what else might be down there, basically. As you get deeper you know, her understanding is um, diminishing, basically. Yeah, but I don't. I don't think so. I think she knows because. Uh, really, you think, you think she's alluding to the specific existence of the idea of evil? Well, what does she say about the parrot in the next episode? Sure. Yeah, that it, it acts according to its master. I'm not saying that she's not alluding to the idea of evil. I guess what I mean is, yeah, there's she only doesn't so know. much she can say about the afterlife. You know, it's uh, yeah, not like she course. has the definitive knowledge about everything that happens to a soul in the afterlife because she's still a human. You know, confined yeah. to the physical and astral worlds. I mean, clearly. So when you when you see what she says, I mean, just really sticking to the words. Even when she's talking about the vortex, it's not something she's actually seen, and that's also what. Right. Again, uh, thinking back to when they meet the great gurus in Atham, these guys they've got knowledge that's you know super deep. They've seen things, whatever. But still, they're they're asking guts. 
Yeah. What what do you know about Griffiths? Because we don't know. What do you know? Because you actually were there. Guts, right. he actually has, with his actual corporate body, been down to that fucking place with the four members of the God Hand, and he's seen the actual vortex with his eyes. This is something none of these guys have done. Not Flora, not Getflin, not any of the... I mean, the Skull Knight, I guess he's done it. We, we, we've seen it, but yeah, that's something. And so that's also something... When she's saying, even with our bodies of light, we, with our astral bodies, we can't travel that far. You can't retain your individuality. And you're like, well, Guts, Volume 3, baby, he's done it. Even Puck <laughs> was there. And I mean, that's also what makes it badass. It's, it's you know, you've got all the super stuff, that magic, and it's, uh, again, in an arc, you see the, the might the actual overwhelming power that magic can have, and even Guts reflects on it. But still, you know, a guy like him, a simple human crawling in the mud, he's been there, he's seen it, he knows about it. And so, and yeah, so that's great. And of course, like you said, uh, she doesn't know, she hasn't seen the vortex, she hasn't been down to the abyss. We as a reader, as a reader, we know because we actually see Griffiths get down there, but yeah, that's, uh, she, she does not. That's the limit of her knowledge. And I think, uh, I mean, like Mira said in, in the past in interviews, he might never actually show us, uh, yeah, what's down there again. Maybe, maybe never. Mysterious. Yeah. Actually, I, I recently answered a question about that, about the idea of evil being canon or not. And, you know, the, the, the common line I return to is that it, it hasn't been refuted yet. You know, Mira himself has said in his interview with us that he's not sure if he'll return to it. But yeah. in lines like this that you just discussed with this two-page spread of the vortex where Flora is clearly alluding to the idea of evil, uh, being a, a, you know, a being lurking down there, con- controlling humans through wow. things like the Behirat, it's like, it's like we know that he knows that the idea of evil is still <laughs> out mean, there. You know what I mean? Yeah. To be specific, and I think that's something, some mistake people often make, it's not like Mura said... Like he removed episode 83, but he sure. did not remove, uh, and so that's the one where we actually get the name, the idea of evil, Mano Genke. But, uh, the fact there's a god down there at the bottom of the abyss, that's not something that's been removed. That's 100% canon. We see Griffiths get down there. We see him seeing this shadowy figure and calling it God. And that's, and the title of the episode is God of the mm-hmm. Abyss. So and and of course, like you said, we 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 get the information about the uh, world of uh, ideas. Uh, we get uh, you know information from Froa that the Beherits are controlled by that entity, uh, and the God Hand. They are the hand of God. So there's a God, you know, above them. All these things are known. There's no doubt about that. What I think we might never get further information on is the motivations of that God, uh, you know, its thoughts. Uh, I think the reason Mira removed the 83 is because you actually get to see uh, the idea of evil tell Griffiths about its motivations, its desire, how it was created. I mean, it's Its super, origins. Yeah it, yeah, it it says everything. And yeah. so, and, and maybe, yeah, maybe, I mean, I understand why he felt it was too much and might have limited things up. And uh, I, I understand why he decided to... Uh, curtail it and leave it at just, you know, there's a god, Griffiths met him and uh, met mm-hmm. it rather, and we don't know more than that. And of course, obviously, I hope we get more information. I, I hope to God. So, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't get anything else. 
to wrap things up, that's why it's appropriate that Flora doesn't say any more than she does. Yeah. Uh, that it, it is alluded to with an ellipsis more than anything, you know? Yeah, of course. And I mean, we, we might still, if we learn more about it, I mean, I would expect maybe Gethlin mm. and, and the three others might share some more knowledge about the astral world, you know, uh, for example, diamonds, some, some new concept we've got. Uh, maybe something we'll, we'll, uh, get uh, more information about and that will shed some more light about the ocean of souls, depending on where they reside. Uh, yeah, maybe void when we get, uh, that confrontation with him, who, who knows when, uh, we'll also shed some light. It's, uh, it's one of these things, maybe even uh, Femto himself. So there's a lot of possibilities. I think it makes sense for Flora, especially since she was explaining it to people who, whose understanding is very limited, let's say, uh, yeah. that she didn't go farther than that. It only makes sense for us. I mean, the reason we're shown the vortex here is because uh, we've already seen it. Flora describes this thing, uh, the afterlife is the way she describes it and talks about people reach realms according to their own karma. Maybe places like heaven and hell exist. We're seeing the vortex. And on the following page, Guts intuits that she's discussing that, the vortex. You know, we see Guts thinking about that with this, yeah. you know, typical Miura thing where he's kind of shading uh, the top of Guts' head so that he's thinking about the vortex that he's seen in volume three, etc. cetera, uh, with what Flora is talking about. It's like Gus realizes it. His, his, his own experience is there as well. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think it's neat. He's he's actually seen hell and he's heard an actual arch demon say that it's hell. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> he actually well, he's a, deity, he's really. the one who could actually. Is that what's great? He's the one who could actually confirm it to her. Yeah, actually, yeah. I've seen uh, I've seen hell. Yeah, it's uh, it's shaped There's... like a. Giant whirlpool. Uh, what do you want to know? I, I've been there. It's uh, it's pretty cold. It's just got these weird ass shapes. Berserk <laughs> is a series of a lot of things, but it's also a series of people that don't talk about their own experiences with others. Yeah. If he could just, if if him and he and Griffith had just had a, a, a sit down over a drink, perhaps <laughs> they could have worked this all out. It'd be a much shorter series. Yeah. And I think that is partly why uh, uh, episode. 83 was left out is because maybe Mira realized that this series is going to be long he's oh. in it for the long haul and he doesn't want to give it up yet you know There's give up that information so many reasons as an editor uh, that I would have cut 83 like Certainly. show not tell uh, 83 breaks so many rules of that like there are so many ways that he can tell or, or rather show uh, what the AD of Evil is talking about in 83 uh, through concept, sure. through contextual situations versus basically just saying it in a verbatim way uh, that I was right. created in this circumstance uh, because humans were asking for these things. Uh, and so I deliver yeah, these it's things. It's like, come on. Not an engaging come on. compared <laughs> to, you know, yeah. when you, when you fit, like when Berserk is done, when you close the last uh, page of the last episode. I think it would be still fun to have some mystery and some uncertainty yeah. as to the yeah. what's the world made up of. I so almost, I think- as as much as I recognize why he cut a three, I also genuinely admire Miura in that moment, in that episodic release moment to go there. You know, think about that moment of him writing episode eighty three and thinking, "I'm going to do it. I'm going to sort of fucking spill it all right here yeah. with a conversation between the soul of Griffith about to become a God Hand member." And the the god of the berserk world, basically, you know. Imagine that moment for him, pinning that episode. Well, it would have been pretty cool. He was probably thinking, 
Okay, I've set it up in volume three. Now I'm yeah. going to cash it in. Yeah. And then he was like, wait, wait, wait. I could actually cash <laughs> it in in volume 70. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. That's patience. Yeah. And well, I, I still would buy her. As, as much as I, I might have criticized him in this episode for doing it, like I, I, I totally understand the reasons he cut it. At the same time, I admire him for, for attempting to have this, this level of conversation that is really crazy. Uh, yeah, I'll say I actually like, I actually like, uh, I really like the last page of uh, the last uh, two page spread of uh, episode eighty two when you actually see like yeah, darkened. Sure, it's uh, it's just amazing. Hey guys, go so, to azeal.net for uh, for an explanation of what Azeal is talking about here. Yeah, that's my uh, homepage. But uh, yeah, so um, very nice. I'll, I just have two small things to say about uh, this episode, though. Uh, the first one is that it's actually the first use of the word pisky by uh, Ivarla when she's... Uh, Holy shit, you're really yeah. digging deep here. I have to page back to what you're talking about. Yeah. Ivalira says that, I'm assuming? Yeah, she, she's uh, saying to, I think Isidro, that uh, piskies like Puck are always exaggerating or something like that. Uh, I would have to... Just to, have to, to clarify for the listeners here that are still listening, by the way, thank you. Uh, Dark Horse translates it as Pixie, although ah, it is well, specifically... I was about to say that. Specifically, Pisky in yeah. uh, the Katakana. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, so, Piskies are the subspecies of elves that uh, Puck and Ivarela belong to. Uh, up to that point, we actually didn't know there were necessarily... I mean, it's hinted at, but there was no word specifically... But she calls them piskies, and it's a furigana for, for kanjis that uh, designate spirits of the wing. You know what they call them because they've got these little wings. And uh, Dark Horse, yeah, they incorrectly translates it as pixie because it's uh, easier. Yeah. But Mura, he chose an older spelling on purpose. It's a Celtic, uh, I think, I think. Celtic spelling. Anyway, he chose, or maybe, maybe it's Swedish. I don't know. Anyway, he chose that uh, older spelling. Uh, pisky on uh, on purpose, so yeah, that's what they're, they're called. I don't know why actually Dacos uh, changed it. Oh, I know why. Because they were like, people aren't going to know what a pisky is. Where yeah, well, I know what a pixie yeah. is, and so they took the easy way out. And then, and then, fifteen volumes later, they're like, ah, oh, we can't call them mermaids, <laughs> can we? We're gonna have to say marrow. Okay. Well, it's the same thing with hawk, right? They didn't bother translating hawk as falcon. Until that Falconia arrived, and then like, ah, yeah. shit. Yeah, that's right. Even though when they started releasing, they already knew about Millennium Falcon. Uh, but then again, they don't translate it as Millennium Falcon. So, a hawk of the Millennium Empire. Yeah, which is uh, oh well, guys, we got to wrap it up. That was a, a definitely one for the books. This episode, in particular, Azil, thank you for summarizing it for us. Yeah, thank no you. Problem. That was dense. We'll be back. For part two of volume 24, again, uh, one of my favorite volumes. I cannot wait to discuss the next episode, one of my favorite episodes literally of all time. Uh, I'll be back for that in a couple weeks. Until then, we'll see you later. Cool. All right. Bye-bye, guys. All right. Bye. The Skullcast is a production of Skullknight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Puela. 
who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Huela has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.